As of today, my wife, Rachel, gave birth to our daughter, Madeline, one month ago. Um, so, yeah. It, she did all the work. Um, so hopefully you'll excuse any tiredness coming through, uh, but I'll make you a deal. If you don't judge me for falling asleep as I teach, I won't judge you for falling asleep as I teach. Um, so I don't know how many of you all have been to Yellowstone uh, National Park before, but it's beautiful, right? There's a certain geyser in Yellowstone that is famous. You've probably heard of it. It's called Old Faithful. It's called Old Faithful because about every 90 minutes or so, um, a huge plume erupts from this geyser. So there's a volcanic activity under Yellowstone. It heats up these underground reservoirs, and then ultimately, after a while, a little too much heating, it gets um, pressurized and comes up. Um, I was only 10 years old when I saw Old Faithful, um, but we've been able to predict this next eruption within a 10-minute accuracy. And it's been like that for the past 135 years, of us predicting it, at least. Um, When I went to go see it, it was freezing there, even though it was the middle of summer. We waited, got there early, waited shivering about 30 minutes to see this spew out, and it was this huge plume, you know, stories tall. And it's incredible how they can predict exactly, so to speak, when it's going to happen pretty accurately. But really, we're just observing something that happens, right? We have no control over when the geyser erupts. It's not like we had any part in that. We're only able to observe its faithfulness. So obviously, we know that God is a faithful God. But it's not because we cause his faithfulness. It's that we observe his faithfulness, and then we can react to that. Right? We, can, we can live our lives based off of that. So this morning, we're going to look at two people in history and how they interact with a faithful God. The first is found in Genesis 25. So you can open up your Bibles to Genesis 25. We're going to see 25 and 27. We're going to look at Jacob, something that God revealed about Jacob in Genesis and how he responds to the promise God made to him. Then we'll move on to 1 Samuel and compare that with something God revealed about David and David's response to that revelation to him. And Father, we're going to ask, how should we respond to what God's revealed to us? How do we respond to God's faithfulness? How do we deal with a faithful God? So we're in Genesis chapter 25, looking at Abraham's descendant Isaac, and we see in verse 19 um, some stuff going on. So, verse 19, 25, not 24. Okay, verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Amorian, Padam and Aram, and sister of Laban, the Amorian, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, the first came out forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which means hairy. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel. So he was called Jacob, meaning heel grabber. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So God has revealed something. He revealed that the older will serve the younger. Right? The older serves the younger. This means Jacob, serves, or, uh, Jacob will rule over Esau. 
God told this to Rebecca, and I think it's safe to assume that she at least told Isaac. We don't know this, but I mean, she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered her about her pregnancy. Um, She probably told Isaac. I think there's a good chance she also told Jacob and Esau later in life. Once again, we're not told this, but um, like I said, my wife just gave birth a month ago, and there's all these stories about pregnancy and what happened, all these things that are always being told. You probably grew up hearing about from your parents when they were pregnant with you. Um, She inquired of the Lord. That was a big deal, and he answered her. And so I think there's probably um, mentioned at least later on in life to Jacob and Esau. But Esau means hairy, right? He was the older and Jacob was the younger. This means Jacob will rule over Esau. That was what was revealed to Jacob. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew... Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He gave up his birthright. So Esau is a man of the fields, right? He goes out, he's a hunter, right? And his dad really likes that. He comes in famished, and he demands some of this red stew, this lentil stew. Esau's probably just barely getting in. We see from his demeanor and what he says, he doesn't think he's going to survive, right? He's that hungry. And so he's just barely getting in. He's so tired, he's dragging himself into the area that Jacob is at. And Jacob sees his brother so hungry, he decides to leverage this against Esau to get his birthright. Birthright was a special privilege the firstborn son gets, having to deal with the inheritance that he would get. Jacob wants it, so he makes a deal with Esau, right? I'll feed your starving self if you give me and sell me your birthright and your firstborn privileges. So Esau does, right? And he gives Jacob his birthright. We already see from the get-go, right? Jacob's not acting in a loving or God-glorifying way, um, we would say. That's not the end of it. We saw, remember, Isaac, the father, liked Esau more than Jacob. So skip down to Genesis 27, just one chapter. It says in verse 1, Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare a savory dish for me as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so my soul may bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening, Isaac's wife was listening, while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game, prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go out of the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there. I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father. He may eat so that he may bless you before his death. All right. So Isaac wants to bless Esau, his favorite son. Right? Rebecca wants Jacob to have that blessing. So he tells Esau, Isaac tells Esau, go hunt for this game. Make my favorite meal you make when you go and hunt. Right? After he eats the meal, he's going to bless that older son. 
His wife heard this and thought, I need to get Jacob that blessing. And so she hatches the plan. Jacob will pretend to be Esau. He'll just go grab a goat from outside. Pretend to be Esau. She'll make a meal the husband likes. That way Isaac will think that Jacob is Esau and bless him instead. This is what an evil plan, right? Your father's so old, he can barely see. He can't really see it all. Um, he's going to die soon, and he knows it. And he wants to bless his son, and so you're going to fool him during this time, right? Well, what will Jacob say to this, right? This is the chosen one. God chosen him to be um, the one who's over his brother. So what's he going to do this? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Look at verse 11. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. I'll be a deceiver in his sight, and I'll bring upon myself a curse, not a blessing. His mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So Jacob's first response isn't, wait, this wouldn't glorify God, right? God told you I would be over Esau, and so we don't need to deceive and sin against Isaac for that to happen. It's going to happen because God's a faithful God. No, Jacob says, I might get caught, right? Esau, he's hairy. His name literally means hairy. I'm smooth as silk. There's no way he's going to notice that, like, not notice that I am not Esau. I might get caught, and he's going to curse me instead of blessing me. So Jacob is more concerned with getting caught than with sinning against his father. We see that he's not relying on a faithful God. He's trying to deceive to get what God has already promised him. So his mom basically says, no, I'll take the curse. Just do what I say. So maybe we see an instance here where obeying your parents is not the same as honoring them. Right? Um, okay, look at verse 14. So he went on to get them, and he brought these goats to his mother. And his mother made a savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, and she um, held her son, and it was in her house. And she put them on Jacob, her younger son. Then she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread, which she had made, to her son Jacob. Right? So during this whole time, Jacob's being dressed ridiculously, right? He's dressed up in his, his brother's clothes. He's dressed up with the skins of those goats, the, the furs on his hand and on his neck. That way, if his father comes to feel him, he feels hairiness instead of just smooth. Um, neither of them stop and say, this is crazy, right? We should stop. I mean, imagining what Jacob probably looked like at this point is just insane, right? They keep going. Verse 18. Then he came to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please. Sit, eat of my game, that you may bless me. <clears throat> Isaac said to his son, um, how is it that you've gone so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Who? Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether or not you're really my son Esau or not. If I'm Jacob, my heart's pounding, right? If you're really my son Esau or not. Verse 22. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy and like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. And then he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. Is what I'm assuming he did. Right? Um, so he said, bring it to me. I will eat of my son's game. I, will bless that I may bless you. So he brought it to him. He ate. He also brought him the wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him. And he said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. 
Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. So Isaac, the father, has his doubts, right? But the plan works. They fool their father, they get the blessing. But notice what he says about the blessing in verse 29. May peoples serve you, may nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse be those who curse you, bless be those who bless you. Who does Isaac think this is? Esau, right? And so he thinks it's Esau. He's going directly against what God revealed about Jacob. He says, may your brothers bow down to you, Esau, not knowing this is Jacob. So Isaac is actively trying to go against God's revelation about Jacob. But God still works it all out to fall under what he said would happen, right? God is faithful, and it works out that the blessing goes to Jacob. But at what cost, right? If we go on, we're not going to read if we go on, but Esau comes in later and is distraught of the fact that the blessing was given to Jacob. He's already lost his birthright, and then there goes any blessing he could have had from his father. All he gets is a curse, and he'll have to serve his brother Jacob. So the question we have to ask is, was this necessary? Did Jacob have to deceive in order to get the position of leadership over Esau? I mean, I can't tell you that, but God worked it out so his will was done. I'm sure if Jacob hadn't lied to his father, God would have worked it out some other way. Right? So let's look at another example in the scripture who was promised rulership and see how he responded. Look at David. Just a few books over, turning the Bible to 1 Samuel 24. So here's some background. Saul was Israel's first king. He started off looking great. He was taller than everyone else. He was a great warrior, and he did what God wanted for a little bit. Then he stops obeying God, and he seems to care more about how he looks to the people than how he looks to God. When God commanded him to wipe out these enemies, he doesn't do it the way God said to and lies about it to the priest and judge Samuel. So God rejected Saul from being king. Instead, God sent Samuel to go find David, and God anoints David as the king, the next king over Israel. David tended the sheep, but he also played this instrument called the lyre, and they actually had David come in and David would play for Saul whenever Saul was upset, and it would calm Saul down. So Saul grew really close to David. He loved David. Then Goliath came, right? The Philistines come up against Israel. There's Philistines on one side, Israel on the other, and the Philistines just send out one man, Goliath, nine foot, nine inches tall, and Goliath challenges people to come out and fight him, and no one does. So David comes up, and he asks, what's everyone doing? Why are they just letting this man, right, challenge God's people, right, and challenge God. And so David uses his sling and some rocks to take Goliath down, cuts his head off with his own sword, pretty gnarly, and they beat the Philistines. But then when David becomes even more successful, people start saying, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens thousands, tens of thousands, right? And Saul, being more concerned with how the people view him, was not happy about that, right? He started acting out towards David. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear multiple times. He told his officers to kill David. Um, So David, now the prized warrior, the one anointed by God to be the next king of Israel, is on the run from Saul. 
So right at this point, right where we're coming in now, David has hundreds of men with him. And Saul keeps bringing these thousands of men to come and kill David, but David has done nothing to Saul. He's just running away. That's all he's doing, running for his life. So what was revealed about David was that Saul was rejected as king and David is anointed as the next king. Right? That's what we see as we come into 1 Samuel 24. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. <clears throat> now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he said, or he was told, saying, Behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took <clears throat> 3,000 chosen men of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm going to give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So Saul is chasing David again, and David's hiding and running somewhere within this cave. They stop because King Saul needs to use the restroom, right? And there's no gas stations or anything. What better place having privacy than a cave, right? So Saul goes into the cave and he's relieving himself. He has no idea it's the exact same cave that David and his men are hiding in. So what a perfect opportunity, right? Saul is defenseless and David's men want to kill Saul. His men say, look, God delivered Saul into your hand. Kill him while he's undefended. So David gets up with his knife in hand and he cuts off a part of Saul's robe. How would we would expect, maybe, from our action movie, right? He gets up, maybe takes Saul hostage and, like, tells his men to run away or something. Um, but no, look what David says in verse 5. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he'd cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So David was bothered by just cutting off the part of the robe, even just that. And he says, because of God, I will not harm my enemy. God anointed him as king. He's the Lord's anointed, so I won't touch him. This is the same man who's been running after, chasing David down, attempting to kill him. He's on the hunt for David right then. All the while, David's already been promised the next kingship, Right? And the only one standing in the way of that kingship is Saul in that cave defenseless. But David feared God more than that. He said, I'm not going to go against the Lord's anointed. Look what he says to Saul in verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and looked, called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of your men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, right, this term of endearment, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off part of your robe and did not kill you, no one perceived there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you were lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. So David comes out, he bows to Saul, he gives him the respect a king should have, um, even though Saul's actively trying to kill David. And David admits that the Lord delivered you into my hand, right? You went to the exact same cave that me and my men were hiding in. 
but I refuse to harm you. Even though it seemed like God gave David the opportunity, David knew it would not honor God to act on that opportunity. Instead, he says in verse 12, May the Lord, Yahweh, judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. God had promised David the kingship, put David in that cave David had been hiding in, but David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed, right? So how many of us here could say we would have the same response as David in the situation, right? Although we would expect that response from someone. I think it's so easy to jump at every opportunity we're given without considering whether or not the opportunity would be the most God-glorifying in the moment. Sometimes it seems God gives us opportunities as a test, right? Especially in this last passage of this morning. Turn to 1 Samuel 26, just a couple chapters over. Here again we see that Saul is chasing David and to kill him. And we're going to see God give David another opportunity to take Saul's life. And what is David going to do? Look at 1 Samuel 26, 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding in the, on the hill of Hekelah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose, went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having within 3,000 men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hekelah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that David, Saul came after him to the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. So even though Saul has seen David, which is no harm on him at all, as soon as the Ziphites say, isn't David over here? Right? Saul just jumps at it. Right? He goes and he starts chasing with 3,000 men again. Saul isn't, he isn't keeping up with it. Right? He just isn't with it. Um, doesn't really understand what's going on. So David sees Saul's out there with Abner and his high, his high official, his commander. He's in the middle, and then all of the rest of 3,000 men are around him in this camp. So what does David do? Look at verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and also to Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and his people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear into the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. So David takes Abishai with him, and the setup couldn't get much better. They sneak to the center of the camp, and Abner's right there. Saul is right there. Saul's spear's in the ground right next to him. It'd be so easy to just kill Saul in the middle of the camp and go back. And this is the height of any action movie, right? Like they're sneaking in, all of these snoring, sleeping soldiers all around them. If one of them wakes up, it's a fight to the death, right? They're probably not getting out of there. And they're just sneaking in, being silent. In the movie, they get to the center of the camp, and that's a setup of what's happening. They're getting Saul, right? Saul's not, not waking up in the morning. Abishai even says, look, you don't want to kill the Lord's anointed, but can I, right? Can I do it? I'll just one time. I'll just do one strike into him. That's it. Not even a second time. I'll just get him once, right? So what does David say? And really right at this point, right, David's the hero of the story. It'd be the climax of the movie. Everyone would be celebrating if they did this and got back to David's camp, right? 
There'd be a huge party. Finally, Saul's been chasing us. He's dead. They stopped chasing us. Um, God has promised David the kingdom. This is the second time that Saul is in David's hand. Look at verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, who will go down into battle and perish. The, um, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now please take the spear at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So David leaves it completely in God's hands. David is trusting that God will do what he promised. God said, David, you're going to be the next king after Saul. And David says, okay, I trust you. He takes the spear and the water jug and he leaves. But notice, God kept the entire army asleep. God would have allowed David to kill Saul and go on unharmed. The world says, right, maybe even some of us say, it would have been the best choice for them to kill Saul right then for David to finally have that position. But David isn't worried about pleasing the world. He's worried about pleasing God. That's his first and foremost priority. So after this, he gets a distance away. David calls out to Abner and actually gets on to Abner saying, Abner, we got to you, right? You're supposed to protect Saul, the Lord's anointed, and you aren't doing a good job. Um, and then Saul hears David and he understands that David does not want to kill him. And he finally agrees, I'm going to stop chasing you. So what makes the difference between Jacob and David? Well, similarly, right, we have Jacob was promised headship over Esau and David is promised the leadership over Saul, right, as the next leader of Israel. Both of them got the position too, right? Eventually both received that position. The difference is Jacob obtained it with deceit and dishonor and David hinted honestly and he trusted God during this time. Even though God gave him multiple opportunities to take the matter into his own hands, he still waits and relies on the Lord. It boils down to trust in God. David trusted God in his circumstances. Jacob did not. He thought he had to deceive to get what was already promised to him. And David did not want to indict himself in going against the Lord. So what about us? Well, we'll promise a lot of things, right? We'll promise eternal life through faith. We place our faith in Christ. We have eternal life. It gives it to us right then. It's not based on what we do, but based on our faith alone in Jesus Christ to give it to us. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come in judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Right? You believe, you have eternal life right then. You're not going to come to judgment at all. You've already passed out of death into life. You know, in 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Because he's a faithful God, if he promises us something, eternal life, it's eternal. If we lose it, it wasn't eternal to begin with. Right? So he's a faithful God. We're also promised that if we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. Food, water, and clothing, what this is talking about. We're promised that God will never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? Hebrews 13. We're promised that Christ will come and get us. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who live and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds. We will always be together with the Lord. He will come and get us. We're promised that this world will not satisfy Right? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That one hurts a little bit, right? 
the things that we have won't satisfy our money, our relationships with others won't fully satisfy. People will let us down. Our jobs won't fully satisfy. Experiences we have won't fully satisfy. We know that from Ecclesiastes. Talks, the whole book talks about that, basically. No vacation is so good, you never want to go on vacation again. Right? No sunset is so beautiful, you're like, I don't want to see another sunset again. Nothing beautiful again. If we turn to our possessions or experiences that satisfy us, we're going to be disappointed. Because the eye is never filled with seeing Ears never filled with hearing. We just want to keep on and keep on. It's never fully satisfied. We're promised that our anger doesn't achieve God's righteousness. This you know, my beloved brethren, you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. For man's anger does not achieve God's righteousness. Sometimes we want it to, right? We act like our anger achieves God's righteousness. If we're treated unfairly, we're angry and we act on that anger. And that's where we fall short. Y'all think David was upset with Saul? Maybe sometimes a little angry with him. This, this guy that, that he loved that's now chasing after him when he hasn't done anything against him. But David knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed and so he feared God more than to harm Saul. Jacob was not his father's favorite and everyone knew it, right? He was probably upset with his father for choosing Esau over him and acted on that by deceiving to get the birthright. Now, if Jacob had acted honestly, would he have gotten the things God had promised? I think so, because God's a faithful God. If David acted dishonestly and deceived, would he have still gotten the things God had promised to him? God is faithful, right? I think so. But would we rather be a deceiving Jacob or an honest David? We'd, we'd rather be David, right? We'd rather be seen as honest and upright before God, a man after God's own heart. So how do we respond to God's faithfulness? Do we go against God's faithfulness like Jacob, or do we wait upon the Lord like David? When we get angry, do we take vengeance on others ourselves, or do we leave it to God? When we see something worldly or sinful that our flesh says, that'll fulfill you, do that, keep doing that thing, it'll be, it'll be really good, do we follow that and try to be satisfied by that, or do we turn to God knowing only He can satisfy us? Or do we doubt God's faithfulness in our eternal salvation? Do we try and work to get God to love us? other than knowing that he loves us no matter what? Do we try to work to get to heaven, right? Knowing that it's a free gift in Jesus Christ. If we've placed our faith in God for eternal life, we have it. And anyone at any point can do that at any time, and they have eternal life right then. Never come to judgment, but are passed from death into life. So just like we don't determine the timing of Old Faithful's geyser, we just observe it and see that it is faithful to erupt at certain times. We don't determine God's faithfulness but we see that he's faithful. And so let's respond, right? Let's respond with trusting him. Some applications this morning. Trust in God's faithful promises. Right? Don't turn to other sources to fulfill us. It's so easy to turn to these things thinking they're going to fulfill our jobs, our relationships, or whatever we're doing. Don't turn to them. And especially don't turn to evil to fulfill what we desire, Right? Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you desires of your heart. The more you delight yourself in the Lord, the more your desires will be in line with him, right? He'll give you the desires. What we're really searching for when we're looking at all this sinful stuff or these temporary things is really eternal treasures, right? Eternal things. They aren't going to satisfy. They're going to pass away. So don't turn to evil to fulfill what we desire. Don't turn to other sources to fulfill us. And then secondly, let's ask whether our decisions bring glory to God. David feared God even when timing seemed perfect. Right? How much better could it be than Saul is using the bathroom in the same cave you're hiding in? 
right? The guy who's chasing after you. If this is like laser tag, oh, you're getting that guy, right? Like, no question. He's right there. He's right exposed. But David feared God, even though that timing seemed perfect. God may give us opportunities, but the best option may be not to take them, right? Maybe a test. This happens with anything, right? Relationships, jobs, words, we want to say anything, right? Think about, is this the best thing that would glorify God or not? So we want to be men and women who trust in God's faithful promises. We don't deceive or, or turn to worldly things to fulfill us, but we trust in God to fulfill us. And ask whether or not our decisions actually bring glory to God. We want to bring glory to God with our lives and make an eternal impact on those around us.